Welcome to the Shari Tzedek Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Here you'll find a live recording of just about every sermon, Devar Torah, teaching, or story from our Arab Shabbat and High Holy Day services. We know that you wish you could be with us more often, and we understand life getting in the way is not a bad thing. To live Jewishly is to understand that just as important as it is that Judaism happens in the synagogue, it's even more important to live Jewishly in your home and on your way. So here we are, in your home, on your way, maybe even on your morning run. If you ever have any questions or want to continue the discussion, let one of us know, and make sure you check out our live stream and YouTube channel for more ways that Shari Tzedek is available to you on demand. Keep an eye on your shofar and email so that when you're able, you can be with us as well. Looking forward to seeing you soon. Well, we are honored and delighted to be joined this evening by Dr. Howard Lupovich, who is a fourth generation Detroiter. So we are not going to say anything about the Red Wings tonight. <laughs> um, Dr. Lupovich uh, went to the University of Michigan, and he did leave Detroit for just a little bit when he went to Columbia University, where he received his PhD in Jewish history. Dr. Lupovich has taught at Cornell, Colby, and the University of Western Ontario. Um, He's taught at the University of Michigan, where he was also a fellow at the Frankel Institute for Advanced Judaic Studies. And now he is back in Detroit as Associate Professor of History and Director of the Cone Haddo Center for Judaic Studies at Wayne State University in Detroit. Um, Dr. Lupovich recently completed a history of the Jews of Budapest and is currently writing a history of the neologue movement in Judaism. And I found Dr. Lupovich when I was Googling. I don't remember what I was Googling, um, but I was, I've actually spoken about Dr. Lupovich from, from the beam. I was writing a sermon on the Torah portion of Amalek and the importance of memory and the importance of learning from history. And Dr. Lupovich is going to be speaking at a time when I know so many of us are worried about a rise in anti-Semitism from across the spectrum. I know we're excited to learn from his perspective of history, um, how he sees history and how he sees today. Uh, Remember, during the service, um, we're just going to be listening. But when the service is over, we'll have an opportunity for question and answer. That's whether you are in the sanctuary. If you're at home, you're either going to have to be on Zoom or on Facebook to ask questions. So you can start planning which route you're going to choose. But Dr. Lupovich, I'm going to give you the whole screen um, and turn it over to you now. Thank you, Rabbi Simon. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to assume that everyone can hear me. Uh, Shabbat Shalom Lekulchem, Shabbat Shalom. It's very nice I, I, to, be, to be invited. Um, this is one of the few times of the year where I can actually say, I'm, I'm going to guess the weather here is probably just as nice as the weather is there. At least six months of the year, that's definitely not true. Also, I appreciate you mentioning my Red Wings. You know, normally uh, in Detroit, we're, we're used to the Red Wings still playing. 
Uh, we've gotten used to it. I will just tell you one brief. If you're a hockey fan, you know that the, the second most famous Red Wing is after Gordie Howe is Steve Eiserman, who was a big, big Red Wing. And I actually got to meet him once. And his turns out his daughter's school played my daughter's, you know, his daughter's middle school played my daughter's middle school in basketball. And so, so he came to the school, you know, the daughters go to the day school. So he was sitting in the audience at Hillel Day School in Detroit, you know, kind of by himself with the visiting parents. So we all thought it was Steve Eiser and someone had to have the courage to go up. So I got to go up and shake his hand. So anyway, I, but uh, I guess what I'm saying is I know this is game seven tonight and I wish your Tampa team the best of luck. Uh, it's an exciting time of year. Now this evening I, I was asked to talk about anti-Semitism. It is something that unfortunately it's on our mind a lot these days. Uh, it seems every day, every week, all the time, there are new things. And what I'd like to do this evening, what I'd like to do this evening is I can't give you the full history of anti-Semitism. That's a full course. I teach a full course on that. That's books. What I'd really like to do is to say a few words about what I think today are the three most prevalent forms of anti-Semitism. So really what I want to talk about this evening is say a few words about the difference between right-wing and left-wing anti-Semitism. That's first. Secondly, anti-Semitism as it emanates from the African-American community. And third, how our connection to the state of Israel relates to this. In other words, criticism of the state of Israel as a form of anti-Semitism or how one distinguishes between those two things. Before I dive into these three things though, let me, I think it's useful in talking about anti-Semitism since it is something we talk about so much, but maybe not always with enough nuance. So let me start by defining a couple of key terms and, and concepts related to anti-Semitism. And I'll start by defining, apart from anti-Semitism, by introducing you to two other terms, one of which I think some of you have heard of, one, the other I'm going to guess that none of you have heard of. So uh, the one that, the, the one that I, I'm going to say few of, or none of you have heard of is the term allo-Semitism. Allo is a prefix which means different. And allo-Semitism is the notion that Jews are inherently different than everyone else. Jews are the quintessential other. Now, allo-Semitism is a catch-all because allo-Semitism as a category or a concept divides into two sub-concepts, one of which is very familiar, one of which is anti-Semitism, the notion that Jews are inherently flawed or it is a negative difference. But the flip side of anti-Semitism is philo-Semitism. Philo-Semitism is a notion that Jews are different in a good or positive or flattering sort of way. Now, what, what I suggest from the outset is that while anti-Semitism is the more obvious, uh, is the more obvious threat, is the more obvious concern for Jews, philo-Semitism, even though it seems nice at first glance, is also something of great concern. Let me give you a couple of examples of philo-Semitism and why we need to be concerned about it. An example of philo-Semitism is all Jews are good at business. All, all Jews are good at business sounds like a compliment, but the notion all Jews are good at business is that there is a very fine line between that and all Jews are Shylock. Or how about all Jews are smart is a compliment, but there's a very fine line between all Jews are smart and all Jews are shrewd or sly or cunning. See, 
philo-Semitism, there's a very fine line between it and anti-Semitism. So it's a less obvious concern, but it is a significant one. One more example of philo-Semitism, from the, from the evangelical Christian community, there is this love of the Jewish state, of the state of Israel, but this love of the state of Israel, while it seems very nice and it seems to work in the favor, not only of the state of Israel, but of Jews, but we have to keep in mind there's a very fine line between that love of the Jewish state and the underlying motivation behind that love of the Jewish state, meaning to bring the rapture, keeping in mind that the rapture is a day where most Jews, both in and out of the state of Israel, are, if they don't become Christian, they die. You know, I'm someone who doesn't plan to become a Christian if the rapture ever arrive, arises, arrives. So for me, the rapture is the day that I die. For me, evangelical Christians are praying for the speedy arrival of the day of my death. I don't consider that to be very flattering. So even though this Christian evangelical relationship with the state of Israel is philo-Semitic in its very nature, we have to be careful about that fine line between, uh, between philo-Semitism and anti-Semitism. So those are the terms. And, and I may come back to, to those during the evening. The other thing I want to say about anti-Semitism in particular, because that is our focus this evening, is we use the, we use the term anti-Semitism in, a very, in, in a, two different ways. On the one hand, there's the original definition of the term anti-Semitism. The term anti-Semitism, if you don't know, was coined by a German sociologist in around 1870, whose name was Wilhelm Marr. And it was, it, it was describing a particular form of Jew hatred, which was racial in nature. He wasn't only a sociologist, he was also a social scientist, uh, a social Darwinist. He believed that the, the races on earth were competing for survival. And his original book, Marr's original book was called The Victory of Jews over Germans. Das Sieg von Judentum über Deutschland. So in his mind, it wasn't just that the Jewish race, and he redefined Jews as a race, was in competition for survival with the German race. In his mind, Jews were winning or even had won. So the, the, you know, in, strictly, in, in strict terms, anti, the term anti-Semitism is racial nature. But, and here's the other way we use it, generally these days we use it in a more popular vernacular way as a catch-all to refer to all forms of Jew hatred. And that's perfectly fine. So when I use anti-Semitism tonight, I'm not going to be speaking in, a, in, a, in, that, in that narrow racial definition. I want to use it more broadly to, as a catch-all to refer to all forms of Jew hatred and to a phenomenon known as Judeophobia. Now, Judeophobia, which is an element of anti-Semitism, means not only does anti-Semitism as a collection of ideas and, and views denigrate Jews, but it also reflects a particular fear of Jews, of Jews as as being sneaky, as Jews, as being somehow powerful, Jewish power. There's a fear of that as well. In fact, there are many parallels between Judeophobia and Islamophobia. Okay, now that I've defined those terms, let me, let me turn to the three types of anti-Semitism I want to speak about uh, and address each one in turn. So first, there's left-wing versus right-wing anti-Semitism, or what we call these days the anti-Semitism of the left and the anti-Semitism of the right. First, this reflects that anti-Semitism does have a strong political dimension, but I would also say, where does this dichotomy between left-wing and right-wing anti-Semitism originate? We can actually pinpoint a moment in history where we really see the beginnings of left-wing versus, left versus right-wing anti-Semitism. That moment is 1848, in 1848, in Central Europe, there were a series of events known as 
the revolutions of 1848. Long story short, this was a moment when the peoples of Central Europe attempted to recreate in Central Europe what had happened in France during the French Revolution in 1789, okay? And most towns in Central Europe, in what is today Germany and Austria and Hungary and, and, and the Czech Republic, there were revolutions, there were local revolutions. The most important of these revolutions was in Vienna, and the leader of the revolution of 1848 in Vienna was a Jewish doctor whose name was Adolf Fischhoff. Now, because of that, there emerged the image, the stereotype of the Jew as the quintessential left-wing liberal revolutionary. Now, these revolutions did not succeed. They were defeated. And they were defeated because the great powers of Europe, the, the states of Europe were able to mobilize, to regroup, mobilize their armies and defeat them. And that was made possible largely by the financial support of a single Jewish family, the Rothschilds. So because of that, out of this same series of events, there also emerged a second stereotype, the Jew as the ultimate counter-revolutionary, the Jew as the ultimate conservative. So from this point on, if you were someone on the left who didn't like Jews, all Jews were Rothschild. If you were someone on the right who didn't like Jews, all Jews were Fischhoff. But there's one more element to it as well. Because no, these are contradictory images. The Jew at Jews as the orchestrators of revolution and the defeaters of, or the underminers of revolution. How could those two things coexist in the mind of some? The fact that Jews could be doing both, this was one of the seeds that created the, the image or the belief in a Jewish conspiracy. Jews are orchestrating and manipulating everything. And eventually this notion of a Jewish conspiracy, Jews working behind the scenes to manipulate everything, both starting and defeating revolutions, for example, Eventually, this crystallized into the ultimate conspiracy theory, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, this notion that Jews can control everything around the world. Okay. Now, what can we say about the difference between left-wing and right-wing anti-Semitism? Well, left-wing anti-Semitism is largely secular in nature. It tends to be more political and economic. In other words, for a left-wing anti-Semite, the Jew is the ultimate capitalist. The Jew is the ultimate, well, in more familiar terms, maybe the ultimate slum landlord. The Jew is the colonialist, the colonizer. Now, those are political notions. For right-wing anti-Semitism, it tends to be more racial in nature. They're the ones who imbibe that notion of a Jewish race, either at war, at odds with other races, or, or more, more common, and certainly more common in America, Jews are one of those races that's undermining pure white races or pure European races. So right-wing anti-Semitism, it, it is political in all of it, but it's grounded in racism. It's also more often combined with an older theological disdain for Jews, based primarily on this notion that Jews are guilty of the crucifixion, Jews are servants of the devil, Jews poison wells, the blood libel, and all of that. So right-wing anti-Semitism, this is especially true in America, the anti-Semitism of white supremacists combines the racial and the religious and the theological. So that's one difference. 
Now, secondly, and this is a this is a related difference between the two. Because of this, left-wing anti-Semitism tends to be more contingent and more situational. In other words, it is possible to conceive of a future in which left-wing anti-Semitism dissipates or even disappears. I would say that if the problem, let's say income inequality, or if 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 the evils of capitalism were somehow cured, and I realize that's a very big if, much of the disdain of the Jew as capitalist would disappear with it. If there were no more housing problems, Jew as slum landlord would disappear, okay? And of course, Jew as colonizer, I would also say, and I'll come back to this when I talk about the last kind of anti-Semitism, that if when the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians is, revolved, is resolved, much of, much of the traction of left-wing anti-Semitism will also diminish. It tends to be situational and contingent. Right-wing anti-Semitism is by and large more existential in nature. The problem for the right-wing anti-Semite is not the Jew doing something like being a capitalist or a slum landlord. It's the very existence of Jews, which is offensive. In other words, in order for right-wing anti-Semitism to disappear with its racial basis and its theological component, Jews would all also have to disappear in, in one way or another. So it tends to be less situational. It is less conditional and less situational in that way. Okay. And lastly, right-wing anti-Semitism tends to be more prone to conspiracy theories. Right-wing anti-Semitism tends to be more likely to see uh, to see the Jewish race, see Jews as the bearers of great power. There is a greater element of Judeophobia there. Okay, so that's the first kind of anti-Semitism. Now I'm speaking in very broad strokes, and this is why I encourage you: if you have questions, when we get to the questions, definitely jot it down, make a mental note, bring it forward. Okay, like I said. I'm speaking in very broad strokes. Now, the second kind of anti-Semitism is the anti-Semitism that emanates from the African-American African -American community. And while in some ways it overlaps with the first kind, there's, there is a, a racial component to it and even, even a stronger left-wing component. Obviously the Jew as slum landlord is a very powerful idea in the African-American community. Uh, it's, not, it's not entirely the same. The anti-Semitism that emanates from the African-American community is best understood, I think, with a clear understanding of what we might call the whiteness of Jews, especially the whiteness of American Jews. Now, whiteness is tricky. Uh, in some cases, it's clear if a person is white or if a person is not. But the question, are American Jews white? And let me be more specific. Are white presenting American Jews white or not? Because American Jews who are Jews of color obviously are not. But what about white presenting American Jews? Are they white or not? And here again, I can make a couple of different observations. First of all, whiteness for white presenting American Jews is relative and it's situational. What do I mean by relative? I mean that if me, if, if I'm in one of those neighborhoods, I say certain neighborhoods of Connecticut or in Detroit, our word for this is gross point, which is overwhelmingly white. In that neighborhood, I may look like other people, but I'm not as white as other people. That's what I mean by relative. 
on the flip side also, if I'm in a neighborhood that's, which is predominantly people of color, I, I am white. I, I, I am white. Okay. That's what I mean by relative. That's what I mean by situational. Okay. Because for, 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 for many white Americans, whiteness is not only a matter of race and skin tone. To be really white, you also need to be Christian. And in some cases, even more specifically, you need to be Protestant and you need to be of Anglo-Saxon descent. White, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant is the only form of whiteness. And there is no white supremacist group in America which does not embrace that basic notion. So in that sense, Jews are not white. Now, second observation I would make is that even though the whiteness of Jews is relative and situational, what is definitely true is that it is easier for Jews to pass as white than it is for people of color to pass as white. Jews have and can pass as white, but there is a caveat. Jews can pass as white as long as they are not too Jewish. If you look different, you're going to have a lot more difficulty pass, passing as white. But you can, so you can do it more easily than some, but there are certain difficulties and there are certain obstacles. What it comes down to, the whiteness of Jews, and this feeds directly into this anti-Semitism from the African-American community, is for those for, those for whom whiteness is a virtue, Jews are not seen as white. Or put it another way, those who see whiteness as a virtue tend to see Jews as not white, or at least not as white. Those who see whiteness as a vice, because it creates, let's say, some sense of privilege, they tend to see Jews as white. So when it comes to whiteness, American Jews in particular, we're kind of getting it from both sides. And so the, the, so the, the, the anti-Semitism that emanates from the, American, from the African-American community, there are elements of the theological, Think of someone like Minister Louis Farrakhan. There is an element of racial competition between Jews and African-Americans. There's an economic dimension, but it is primarily the, based on the notion that Jews are part of the white people who are inflicting harm in one way or another on the African-American community. And for the last century, the, be the best successes that American Jews have had in reaching out and, and looking beyond this tension with the African-American community is basically underlying the fact that while Jews may look white or whiter, Jews are not seen as white by the people inflicting the most harm on the African-American community. That, that's, that is uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel and Martin Luther King together. That is their relationship in a nutshell. They saw the common ground. And really, we know in our own community today, the goal is to rediscover that common ground. Again, broad strokes. That's certainly worthy of more discussion. Okay. Now, the last kind of anti-Semitism, which I think in some ways is the most perplexing for us and the most complex as American Jews, is how to draw the line between criticism of the state of Israel on the one hand and anti-Semitism on the other. Okay. Now, this, by the way... Uh, this element of anti-Semitism, this is the principal source of anti-Semitism from the Muslim community, both in the United States and even more so in Europe and places like France. Okay. Now, when it comes to trying to draw this line, we have two 
mutually exclusive uh, approaches or suggestions how to draw that line, how to distinguish criticism of the state of Israel from anti-Semitism. Now, I would say, before I tell you what they are, they are each one, they are mirror images of each other in the sense that each one is one dimensional. Each one is seeing that question in a uh, in a one-dimensional way, and, and I, you know as well as I do, when you try to understand something which is complex in a one-dimensional way, it doesn't matter what the one dimension is, it's going to fall short. So what are these two views? On the one hand, we have this notion that any criticism of the state of Israel, any criticism whatsoever is anti-Israel, anti-Zionist, and therefore anti-Semitic. To which I have to ask the question, I have to ask the question, any criticism, any criticism whatsoever? Because remember, any criticism doesn't simply mean criticizing the policies of the state of Israel, let's say vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians. Any criticism. Does this mean that criticizing the way that the women at the Kotel are treated is anti-Semitic? Does this mean that Chabad, which did not recognize the state of Israel until the mid-1950s, they're anti-Semitic? Does this mean that Haredi Jews today who don't recognize the state of Israel, they're anti-Semitic. Let's also keep in mind that within the pantheon of Zionist thought, and since the, and since the existence of Zionism in the state of Israel, the most strident critics of Zionism and the state of Israel have been Jews, have been Zionists, have been Israelis. Ben-Gurion's biggest critic was Jabotinsky, and Jabotinsky's biggest critic was Ben-Gurion. And they're criticizing each other. To call them anti-Semitic is absolutely ludicrous. So this notion that any criticism of the state of Israel is anti-Semitic is simply too one-dimensional. It simply does not add up. And it's also problematic for another reason, because there's a corollary to the notion uh, that all any criticism of the state of Israel is anti-Semitic. The corollary to that notion that has emerged in the last few years, think about it. The corollary to the notion that any criticism of the state of Israel is anti-Semitic is that any, anyone who is supportive of the state of Israel is by definition not anti-Semitic. And that simply doesn't make sense. We have examples to the contrary. I'll give you, I'll, let me give you a couple. The president of Hungary, Viktor Orban, a great supporter of the state of Israel. He has had a great working relationship with, well, recently former or soon to be former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. I guess it's former Prime Minister now. I'm not exactly sure where we are in the, in the terminology thing, scheme of things. He's a, Orban is a great supporter of the state of Israel. He is all, also a rabid anti-Semite. Come back to my example of Christian evangelicals, great supporter of the state of Israel but they're supporters of the state of Israel, uh, not out of any love of the state of Israel or Zionism or Jews, but as a step toward a moment where Jews are going to suffer a great catastrophe because of the Christian, uh, Christian view of the future. So that, 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 sort of, that emerged from this notion, a corollary to this notion that any criticism of the state of Israel is anti-Semitic, uh, anyone who's supportive of the state of Israel is not anti-Semitic. And today there are certainly politicians who are using it for cover. I'll say something friendly to Israel, therefore it excuses anything I say to or about Jews. Now, on the other hand, on the other hand, there are clearly, while there are many critics of the state of Israel who are simply critical of the policies of the state of Israel, there is no question 
there are some critics of the state of Israel who are using, are using their criticism of the state of Israel to articulate not only an, an animosity toward the state of Israel, but also an animosity towards Jews. And they're doing it among other reasons, because they want to express antipathy towards Jews without being seen as racist. See, here's the thing. Let me make the following analogy. You know, for a long time, animosity towards Jews was largely religious in nature, really until 1850. We use the date 1850 because that's the date that an anti-Semitic, one of the first racial anti-Semitics, anti-Semites, the composer Richard Wagner, he published his essay about Jews and music. It was one of the earliest expressions of racial anti-Semitism in 1850. And one of the things that Wagner says at the beginning of this book, and if you're looking for an interesting book, not an easy read, but a, but a very interesting book, one of the things, what the question that Wagner asks himself is, I'm an enlightened person. I no longer buy into all this Christian theological mumbo jumbo. I don't believe that Jews crucified Christ. I don't care, but I still don't like Jews. Why? And his answer was race, was, was racial competition, that the Jewish race was corrupting German culture, especially a composer like Felix Mendelssohn Bartholdy, who was of Jewish origin. Now, now that was a moment in the transition from Jew hatred being primarily religious to Jew hatred being primarily racial. We have something else that happens a century later. Think about it. Once there's Hitler and Nazism and Auschwitz, to be a racial anti-Semite risks being lumped in together with Hitler and Nazism. So since the end of the Second World War, there have been people who don't like Jews, but they don't want to use racial language anymore because they don't want to be lumped in together with Hitler and, and, and other racial anti-Semites. So the alternative for them or the solution for them is criticism of the state of Israel, as an, of the Jewish state as an alternative to racial criticism of individual Jews or Jewish communities or the Jewish people. So there clearly are voices that are critical of Israel that are, are anti-Semitic. And the big question is, how do we distinguish between the two? How do we know when criticism of the, where do we draw the line? How do we know that criticism of the state of Israel is simply a, a criticism of a policy and not anti-Semitic? How do we know when this criticism is being used as a way to, um, to express anti-Semitism, okay? So that, that's really the gist of it. And I would just say that with this last one, the best way to, to, to really see that line, it's difficult to make a sweeping generalization. You have, to, you have to look at it case by case. So let me give two examples and then I'll close, okay? I think the most obvious case, the most informative case is the case of Hamas. Hamas is an example of an organization which postures itself as fighting a political war against the state of Israel. And maybe... Let's leave, let's leave their violence aside for the moment, okay? But the fact, of that is, the fact of the matter is, when you look at the Hamas Charter, Statute 28, it's no longer talking about fighting a political war against a rival state or an occupying whatever. It begins to use the anti-Semitic language of a Jewish conspiracy. It begins to implicate world Jews, and that is clearly anti-Semitic, okay?
But there also are individuals who, you know, we play, we, when we go case by case, we place them on one side or the other. And I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of examples here on LinkedIn. First is Professor Cornell West, I think is a great idea. He's taught, taught, taught at Harvard and Princeton. He is a severe critic of the state of Israel, severe critic. But what's important about him is he does not single out the state of Israel for its, for, for, as, be, as being some, somehow evil. Rather, his criticism of the state of Israel is situated squarely in a broader global criticism of all the problems he attributes to the state of Israel. He doesn't single the state of Israel out. And that's really one of the keys. Criticism of the state of Israel, which singles out the state of Israel, in that case, well, we can see that as a version of singling out an individual Jew. In other words, singling out the state of Israel can be seen as an example of allo-Semitism. Now remember, it's singling out the state of Israel for good or for bad. That's the allo-Semitism, that's that fine line, all right? So let me close by suggesting, what can we do about all these, these forms of anti-Semitism? How best to respond, and then we can take some questions. Okay, first of all, as I said, any one-dimensional approach to this problem is going to be inadequate. Anything that's, that's basically says this way is right and every way is wrong, it's, it's simply too complicated, too complex. Secondly, secondly, it's important to remember that an anti-Semitic assault on, whether it's verbal, whether it's physical, whether it's political, an assault on one Jew is an assault on all Jews, which means if an Orthodox Jew somewhere is attacked, and unfortunately that's happened recently. And you say, well, I'm not an Orthodox Jew. I don't like Orthodox Jews. That has nothing to do with me. It does. That is an attack on all Jews. Similarly, if you're someone whose politics are more to the right and you say the attacks on George Soros have nothing to do with me because my politics are different than his, that is delusional. The attack on George Soros is an attack on all Jews regardless of their politics and outlooks, okay? Lastly, it's important to recognize that while all forms of anti-Semitism, every form I mentioned this evening, is of great concern and requires a strong and concerted response from the Jewish community, not all forms of anti-Semitism are the same as every other form of anti-Semitism. This is the most important lesson we can learn from our forebears in Europe, and, and in America and the Middle East who confronted anti-Semitism, the most effective response is the proportional response. Lumping all forms of anti-Semitism into a single sort of a vague notion that Jews have always been the, all, Jews are always the target of hatred. Lumping them all together. You know, every generation someone stands up to destroy us. Those are, those are useful ideas, but they ignore the fact that not all forms of anti-Semitism warrant the same response. They all warrant a strong response, but not the same response. And if there's one thing you take away, it's the importance of subtlety and nuance in trying to address this. So I thank you and I say Shabbat Shalom. And now I think we're gonna resume the service and uh, hopefully you'll have some good questions for me. So thank you very much. Dr. Lupovich, thank you so, so, so much. And, and I really um, hope that, that those of you who have questions will make sure to stick around and ask them. Um, give me one moment. Wish I lived in Detroit. I could take his class. Yes. 
Um, no, and, and that really, um, you know, to give us that much information in half an hour, um, I think that we are definitely thinking about the situation today uh, from a much more enlightened perspective. And, and like I said, I know everyone has some great questions. If anyone has a question in the sanctuary, if anyone at home has a question, you can type it in on Facebook or into the chat, or you can raise your hand and I can even bring you onto the screen and you can ask. So I'll, I'll, I'll start with the first question. Um, Dr. Lupovich, you talked about conspiracy theories. And I think you, you spoke of them mainly, I forget which, which direction you saw them coming. Um, but I definitely think of, of Louis Farrakhan as, as being someone who um, speaks of Jews and conspiracies. And I also saw something like QAnon as terrifying, even though it wasn't directly to Jews, but, but I think it could have been. So looking at today's conspiracy theories, how, how do they compare to things like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and former conspiracy theories? And, and how concerned are are you? Great question. Thank you, Rabbi. Well, first of all, you're right. Minister Farrakhan, his, he has a very specific Jewish conspiracy theory that, that, that Jews masterminded the slave trade, that Jews have manipulated the you know, society, politics, economics to the detriment of the African-American community. Yes, absolutely. But I think you're also right in saying that, 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 that most, most anti-Semitic conspiracy theories emanate from the political right, even though there are some that don't, like Farrakhan. So QAnon is a great example. Uh, the, the, the tropes, that the, 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 the word, the terms, that the ideas that QAnon use, these are, they could be almost be cut and pasted from the protocols of the elders of Zion. I mean, there, there are blatant examples when um, the, the, the QAnon lady in Congress, uh, when she talked about Jewish space lasers causing fires in California, that's kind of a goofy one, but that is a textbook example of one. Uh, the vilification of George Soros is page by page using the pro protocols of the elders of Zion as a template. He is the powerful Jew who uses his money and his political connections to lurk behind the scenes and to manipulate a situation all over the world. And it's the global dimension of him. Uh, now, it, it's also true that these days, conspiracy theories don't aren't, aren't always explicitly anti-semitic but i think if there's one thing we've learned that even if conspiracy theorists are not talking specifically or explicitly about jews today eventually all conspiracy theories wind eventually they wind up talking about jews because if you think about it the original conspiracy theory was the belief that jews killed christ and since then, Jews have basically been accused of doing pretty much everything. So it, it, conspiracy theories are, are, are a great concern for the Jewish community. As I said, even though they're not explicitly Jewish, they're going to be. It's only a matter of time before a conspiracy theorist blames Jews for the pandemic, blames Jews for the economy. It's only a matter of time, blames Jews for everything. And remember, in terms of political language, Jews can be demonized not only on both as being part of both sides of the spectrum, but manipulating politics in general. All right. My question was, is Jewish a race? Because sometimes my friends ask me about it and not really sure what to say. Mm. That's a great question. Are Jews a race? 
Um, and, and here's the problem. If the term or concept of race was a benign term, you might, we might make that this would be an interesting conversation. We, there are ways in which Jews have the elements of other races, you know, in terms of genealogy, we trace ourselves back. But that's kind of moot in the sense that while race science was maybe for its first 10 years, not racist and discriminatory in nature, because racial language is automatically loaded, it's different. The, the question of are Jews a race is the, 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 the academic question is set aside by, is it okay for someone to say Jews are a race because it's rare where that person is not racist. And so because the, the notion of Jews being a race is automatically associated with every anti-Semitic, philo-Semitic uh, stereotype about Jews, that the notion of Jews being a race is difficult. Uh, if not ludicrous, what, what really belies the notion that Jews are a race is, you, you know, if you go to New York, if you go anywhere, there's a large concentration of Jews. There are Jews who, uh, who emanate from every ethnic and racial group on the planet. You know, the, the, the Jewish population of the, state, of the state of Israel is just a tapestry of different kinds of people from all over the world. Now, in America, it's true. Most Jews are, as I said white presenting, but there are more and more Jews of color. So the simple answer is no, for that reason. But great question, thank you. What's your response when somebody doesn't even know they're making a anti-Semitic comment? For instance, that football player who made the comment, I know Julian Edelman, who was Jewish, had the right response of, inviting them to the Holocaust Museum. But what's your response when we have that? We had something locally, a city councilman who made a comment that was anti-Semitic. He didn't even realize it was. Well, but there's two things. I would say two things. First of all, ignorance is an easy or an easier or relatively easy problem to deal with because the antidote to ignorance is enlightenment. And Julian Edelman is a great example of Another athlete said something anti-Semitic and Julian said, let's talk, let's go to the Holocaust Museum and let's deal with it that way. So, it's, so uh, alleviating the, the ignorance is part of it, but ignorance does not excuse everything because there are cases where people are saying that not only because they are ignorant or just, not only because not only, it's not only a matter of ignorance, it's a matter of this person is, is just bigoted and discriminating about everything. Someone, someone who is a bigot and is including being anti-Semitic as part of a broader tapestry of bigotry and, and hatred of other people, that's a big problem. So I would say the first step is if to determine if it's just ignorance, great. Not great in that these great that it happened, but that's a pretty easy fix. But if there's more to it, then it has to be dealt with. Now, I, now I, I wouldn't go so far to say that someone who is anti-Semitic should immediately be dismissed. You know, we want to go too far with that, but we'd also want, we also we want to make sure we go far enough. Someone who says anti, something anti-Semitic, you give them a chance to atone if, if it's just ignorance. But if there's more, they have to answer for that as well. Thank you. That's a very good question. Personally, I like to give the benefit of the doubt that it's just ignorant. And I've, in my experience, if you hand someone enough, enough information and enough to think about, you can alleviate some of it at least. 
So we do, we have a question from, um, from someone on Zoom and, and I'm gonna add my own question to it, which is unrelated, but I'll connect them anyway. Um, so the question is at a time in which uh, universities are kind of at, at the spotlight of anti-Semitism um, and faculty are being criticized for support of Israel, um, you know, and, and, and being anti-BDS, have you, what have you experienced in teaching courses about anti-Semitism and Jewish history on, on campus and how do you handle such pressure? And then un, I just wanna throw my question in, um, which is going back to your area of expertise during that time in Hungary, um, you know, something you and I talked about is congregations that are politically divided, um, where we have people on the left who are saying, well, you know, yes, there's anti-Semitism on the left, but that on the right is more dangerous. And then folks on the right who say, yeah, there's anti-Semitism from the right, but the one on the left is more dangerous. What was the response of the Jewish community in Hungary, where I'm assuming synagogues had folks on the left and the right? Um, how did they deal with that? And, and what was the response to the, to the larger non-Jewish community as well? Great question. Thank you, Rabbi. And thank you for the other question as well. So let me answer the university question first. Yes, it's true that uh, universe, universities have been there. There's this new uh, anti-Semitism on, on university campuses. Um, personally, I, I think in, in, in the best possible situation, or it's best handled if it's part of academic discourse, because universities are supposed to be places where students faculty, scholars debate and discuss. So the goal is not to squelch the debates. The goal is to have these debates, these disagreements in a way which is civil and constructive. Now it really comes down to the, the problem there. I think what's being lost on some university campus, this is my own sort of personal sense, is that there's a, there's a misunderstanding, there's a confusion about what it means to be, what it means to be a critical thinker. See, critical thinking doesn't mean only being critical of the, of the view that disagrees with you. Critical thinking means being critical of your own view. Critical thinking doesn't only ask, doesn't only mean asking the question, how do you know? It also means asking the question, how do I know? And universities, some universities are losing that ability to think critically, be self-critical, and it's, it's allowing the arguments to devolve into these just attacks with no listening. Obviously, the false urgency of the 24-hour news cycle and social media has aggravated that problem a lot. But it's solvable on, your, uh, on university campuses simply by recultivating a sense of critical thinking and constructive discourse. And I know this is my own campus. I teach at Wayne State University, which is an urban campus in Detroit. Wayne State has maybe the largest student population of Muslims and Arabs anywhere in North America and we've had virtually nothing in the way of anti-Israel criticism and virtually nothing in the way of anti-Semitism. And it, it's similar to the city of Detroit itself. In Detroit, we've had a Jewish community over 100,000 living next to a Muslim and Arab community that's a quarter million, the largest outside the Middle East for a century without incident. So on my campus, the, the way we handle this is through constructive and civil discourse. And I can give you a personal example. The last time I taught a course on Zionism, which on many campuses, it attracts students who are predominantly Jewish. In this particular course, most of the students were Muslim. Let me repeat that. 
I taught a course on Zionism and the state of Israel and the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians to a, to, to a, a class that was probably 70 or 80% Muslim. And it was a phenomenal experience. I, I'll, just, uh, I'll just give you one specific example. Toward the end of the course, I brought in a couple of outside speakers. First, I brought in a Palestinian civil rights lawyer from Dearborn, Michigan, which is where the that's where the Muslim and Arab communities are centered. She was one of the organizers of the Gaza flotilla. Then the following session, I brought in a local Israeli uh, who was who was in the Israeli Navy. He was one of the he was one of the sailors who actually boarded the flotilla. So the students got to hear about the story of the flotilla from two opposite points of view. But here's the point. My students peppered both of these speakers with the same intensity of questions and challenges and criticisms to their point of view. It was phenomenal. Now I have to admit, increasingly, it's possible my university is the exception. There are reasons for it, but it's certainly possible. I see in my own experience on my own campus, I see possibility here for other campuses. And I, and I see in Detroit, I see possibility for other, town, for other cities as well. And then I had asked about um, a divided Jewish community. Oh, thank you. Thank, oh, thank you. Right. right. The divided. Yeah. Um, Jewish communities have always been divided. I mean, we, we, have been, we have been arguing with each other. That notion of two Jews, three opinions isn't just a kibitz. It's real. You can't find a page of the Talmud where there aren't two rabbis criticizing each other. By the way, they're also self-criticizing as well. It's great critical thinking. Now, in terms of Jewish in terms of the, the Jewish communities of Europe before the war, well, in Hungary, for example, mo the, the anti-Semitism there was overwhelmingly right-wing anti-Semitism. It was a state that was sliding into the direction of fascism. The leader of Hungary in the 1920s and the 1930s was well. He was uh, he's a lot like the leader of Hungary of Hungary right now. He was a rabid anti-Semite, a racial anti-Semite who believed conspiracy theories about Jews. He was he was a right-wing anti-Semite. So the Jewish community was really only dealing with what today we would call anti-Semitism of the right. Now. After the war, in the 50s and 60s, what was left of the Jewish community, they began to deal with Stalinist-style anti-Semitism, which that's also, a, that's really the subject of another talk, but, you know, the anti-Semitism under Stalin used a, a lot of the rhetoric of the left, but Stalin was not really left-wing in the sense he was more authoritarian than anything else. But in terms of that pre-war Hungarian community, Hungarian Jewish community and congregations and other pre-war European con con congregations, the, the right-wing anti-Semitism, especially as it was fortified by Hitler and Nazism, just overwhelmed all other forms. It was so prevalent. It, it was uh, so, even if they were divided on most other things, they weren't divided on that. And I think, unless another one pops up, this might be our last question. Um, having seen anti-Semitism go from a popular uh, problem to a political problem in Europe, um, how concerned are you right now politically in our country with anti-Semitism and, and the potential of it becoming um, you know, more of a, of a state political issue? Great question. Where are we now? And what, what's the comparative moment? It's a good question to end on because my, my answer has a shade of cautious optimism here. I would say we are not, first of all, let's be clear, we are not in Nazi Germany. 
We are not even in Mussolini's Italy. I would say where we are is most, is most uh, comparable to the time of the Dreyfus affair, where there was a strong anti-Dreyfus movement who looked at not only Dreyfus being a Jew, but everything he represented, the criticism or the anti-Semitism against Dreyfus was a broader critique of, the, of French liberalism and the French Republic. Can you, can, there, you, can you do Dreyfus affair on one foot for those who aren't? Yeah, yeah. Dreyfus was an assimilated French Jewish officer who was uh, framed for committing treason. And when he was being publicly, publicly sentenced, anti-Semitic anti riots broke out in France. But the important thing about the story is the French left rallied around Dreyfus and eventually uh, he, he was retried, exonerated and, and, uh, and promoted. So Dreyfus was an anti-Semitic moment, which ultimately led to the defeat of anti-Semitism in France. Okay. Now, what the similarities I see, and where, I, where, although I am very concerned about the surge of anti-Semitism, for me, there are two sort of standards I would use, or two sort of measuring rods. Two things we have not yet seen uh, in the United States, certainly. First of all, there are no anti-Jewish laws. You cannot point to a law which specifically says Jews cannot do. The last anti-Jewish law, federal law in this country, was the anti-immigration law passed by a, a conservative Congress and a xenophobic Congress in the 1920s. And even that one wasn't explicitly Jewish. So there are no anti-Jewish laws, first of all. Secondly, when, God forbid, a synagogue is attacked or graffitied or whatever, the, we, can, we, we can still reliably call law enforcement to help us. As long as, we, as long as calling the police is not only our first option, but it's a reliable option, that's as long as law enforcement is keeping us safe. That's what was true of Dreyfus at the Dreyfus time. There were anti-Jewish riots. The French military and the French police put those riots down. In other words, as long as we are still a state of laws and a legality and law enforcement and public safety, we're okay. Any attempt you know, to undermine democratic values, very bad for Jews. But that hasn't happened yet. I think I would say, in retrospect, January 6th was a precipice. It was a moment where it could have gotten worse, but it was a moment that thankfully came and went. And to me, at least, it, there's a possibility we are on the road to healing in a, in a variety of ways. That, of course, leaves to be seen. That's my own cautious optimism. But no, we are not in Nazi Germany. We are not in Hordes, Hungary. We are, we, are, we are still a democratic country, even though, that, even though that democracy has been challenged and shaken. It's still there. And, and lastly, I would say that this country has a longer history of democratic uh, and liberal institutions, which are proving to be more durable than some people were concerned about. But we still have a lot of work to do. All right, Dr. Lupovich, thank you so, so much for joining us. Um, if, if anyone does have unanswered questions, I do have Dr. Lupovich's email and, and I'm sure he'd be happy to take those. Um, and, and my prayer is, you know, that, that we don't have to have you come talk about this again um, and that next time we can go to a hockey game together. Absolutely. But I will be happy to come down and talk in person when all this is over. It'll be my pleasure. Tampa is a great city and you're only 80 miles from Disney World. So, I mean, come on. You know. <laughs> But thank you so much for inviting me. All back. right. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Thank you. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.